it's just the only route to certain things that I actually think my son is suited for, which because he's an academic dude and and intellectual. He started reading, he started reading, A Handmaid's Tale. Oh, really? That's a yeah. I'm I'm like okay. that's a choice. I mean, we'll see yeah. if he finishes it, but yeah, anyway. okay. I don't know. Could lead could lead to some interesting conversations. I've somebody said he we should get him a copy of Dune, which we do not have. I was like, maybe it's I feel like. Dune. Is it time for Dune? I didn't read Dune till much later. Yeah, I found it impenetrable. Something. It's it's tough to start. Okay, okay, we'll figure but it out. I'm trying to think of what's like the pre-Dune. What's the thing you read in junior high when you're getting yes. ready to read Dune? Yes, I'll have to think on that because I know there's something. Listeners, we need the book that the 12 year old will read that will prepare him later to read Dune. We are taking suggestions. Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we're going to ruin Tucker Carlson. No, we're going to (laughs) ruin Tucker Carlson getting fired. That makes more sense. And we're going to ruin Trump being on trial for rape. I, I don't yeah, no, you two know. Two <laughs> unquestionably good things, but uh, we'll find a way. We'll find a way to ruin them. We always do. Okay, this episode, we're going to dive into a couple of topics that are in the news recently. As we said at the opening, these are topics that we talked about in past episodes like years ago. Yeah. We've been doing this show for kind of a long time, Maya. It's, it's been, it. this will, in the fall, it will be six years, Rebecca Cohen. Oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy. How are it's we not so famous yet? Like, what is uh, happening? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know right? how we're not famous yet. It's weird. We have a very small and passionate group of listeners, and I'm shocked that the world has not feted us with flowers yet yeah we need to expand that audience that core somehow like like i'm thinking of this now six years into it i'm like you know what we should do is try to expand our audience what if what if <laughs> we tried to promote our podcast somehow and oh get it God. in front of well, new we people we are taking any suggestions from our beloved <laughs> listeners on how to promote our podcast but i think what's really interesting about this episode actually is that we talked about Tucker Carlson a few years back uh, in relation to the college admission scandal and white mm. privilege. We talked about E. Jean Carroll when she first revealed her accusations of having been raped by Trump and how it connected to a certain generation of women that were coming to reckon with you know, the Me Too movement. And I think what's really interesting is that I think triggered by the, by the calendar of the legal system... these things are coming to a head or coming to certain consequences in ways that I don't know that we would have imagined then. Yeah. So I think that it's really, it's, I'm very interested to see uh, what we said then and how we're, what we're seeing now. Before we do that though, I have to know Maya, how are you doing and what are you drinking? I'm drinking my Fortaleza with lime, but I also added mango to it because we have those nice, uh, like yellow, little yellow mangoes. 
and I just cut it up so it's like fruity, but you put it in the tequila. In the yeah, in the oh, drink. That's so like a little. It's almost like a little boba, like the little yeah, oh, and it's very <laughs> delightful. Um, and I'm doing okay, as I've shared with our listeners on Discord. I've, you know, it's been a, a tough year at home. Things are turning around. I just want to thank our listeners for their incredible insights about having brains that work differently because mm -hmm. our listeners' brains work differently because they're like our brains. <laughs> right, right. I would say work better. but Better, better mm -hmm. for sure. Differently, I mean, we, yes. It's not a contest, sure. but... It's, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> so I just want to thank our listeners very much. Um, but I'm about to go to a two-week residency in rural Georgia. And listeners, you will be proud to know that I have my stickers. I'm going to show one to Rebecca from the organization INeedAnAbortion.com so that wherever I go in rural Georgia in any public restroom, on any light post, I can put this sticker so that people who need an abortion can find one. That's great. You're doing good work there. Now, how are you doing and what are you drinking? Rebecca's dressed up like a grown-up right now. Have you I'm wearing a shirt, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in like workout gear or pajamas. It's true. Well, you're not wearing a shirt. You're wearing a blouse. It's a, this is definitely a blouse. Like you can't uh, call it, you could not call it anything else. And it's not like a top. It's a blouse. It's, it's, a, it's like a grown up a shirt. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. You caught me on a day, on one of the <laughs> rare days when I put on a shirt, a blouse. I put on a blouse. Um, I'm doing great. I have almost entirely healed from my upper lid blepharoplasty, my eyelid lift. Looks fantastic. Surgery. You can't Looks see it. My, fantastic. My, my camera's not good enough on my computer, so you probably can't see. Um, there's these like lingering dark spots right underneath where the bags under my eyes are. And the bags aren't so pronounced, but when you have a bruise right underneath them, they become very pronounced looking. So I look really, really tired. Like a lot really of concealer. Tired. A lot of concealer. I have not found the concealer that will work. And I've been looking and I've bought like three different things and I have not found anything that actually covers up these dark spots. So um, listeners, if you know of a really great color corrector that's full coverage and will really just make dark circles under the eye go away, I'd appreciate it. Because I spent good time and money on getting my upper eyelids to look amazing. So amazing. I don't want to not be able to enjoy it because my lower lids look like I haven't slept in 10 years. And what are we drinking? Oh, well... I am drinking a Harvey Wallbanger. Yes. Uh, it's, it goes with the blouse. It does. It goes with the blouse. There's definitely like a kind of a 1979 housewife quality. Yeah, to both. Oh, no, not, not housewife. 1979 no? looking for Mr. Goodbar at the bar after work quality. Okay. That's uh, the Harvey Wallbanger and that's the blouse. You're like, I have a job now. I'm not fair. at home taking care of the no, kids. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. I divorced uh, my husband. I'm going to have sex with it, a stranger tonight. 1979 divorcee <laughs> is what I am rocking right now. Um, the Harvey Wallbanger, if anyone isn't familiar, is vodka, 
orange juice and Galliano. And we happened to have a pile of like mandarin oranges that Matt brought home from the grocery store. So I was like, I'm going to make orange juice out of that and make a ridiculously stupid cocktail. So I did. Fantastic. Well, listeners, we have received with great enjoyment your responses to the episode on the Avengers. <laughs> it would take way too long to go all over all of that right now. So we are going to save it, but we we want to talk about it. Maybe we can do there were many opinions. Yeah, we could do a nice bonus episode. I think that's a really good idea. But right now we have many things to get to about E. Jean Carroll and about Tucker Carlson and about this insane couple of weeks we've been having in the national media. So let's let's have let's at do it. it. So E. Jean Carroll was famously an advice columnist, uh, a sort of New York bon vivant society lady, very much the Carrie Bradshaw of her day. Like Mm. that's exactly who she was. Kind of party girl, very clever writer. That is the position that she held, uh, although, you know, a generation older than Carrie Bradshaw. Um, And when we did the episode about E. Jean Carroll, um, she had just written this incredible essay that was an excerpt from a book that she had written about being raped by Trump in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room. We talked about how her revelations fit into the moment of the Me Too movement and how she was marking the advent of a Me Too literature um, and how, how she wrote about this tour of horrible men in her life. And we were sort of going into what it means to be that kind of woman of a particular generation coming to terms with Me Too and how it made it different than even women of our generation. So let's, why don't we play a a quick clip from that and listeners can sort of hear some of the highlights of that conversation. Now we want to jump into our really main, main topic Yeah, that we started thinking about because of two recent events, one being E. Jean Carroll coming forward with her accusations about Trump raping her, and the other being the passing away of Judith Krantz, author of many a sexy ladies book. Yes, and, and longtime listeners will remember that I've spoken with profound fondness about Judith Krantz and her novels and the impact that they had on me growing up. Uh, and E. Jean Carroll is very much a character out of a Judith Krantz novel. So much, right? It's like she is she is that. She was of that generation. And there are just interesting things that those two things bring up. It's You know what the thing is? And I think part of the reason people have a hard time talking about it is that It's so much more than just she accuses Donald Trump of raping her, which, by the way, she does in a way that's like incredibly credible and like harrowing. But I feel like it's like one of the first pieces of like Me Too literature. It's Hmm. brilliantly written. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so well written. She writes about this parade of hideous men and how she thought of them as hideous men. And that not even all the men that she had terrible experiences with are the ones who rate 
as the truly hideous men that she's she, encountered she in her life. Her she has a list of like the really hideous ones. Yeah. And she goes through them one by one. And as she does, she kind of paints this picture of who she is, what she was sexually, choices that she made, coping strategies. And what's so brilliant is that so many of the stories, one after another after another, are ones that end in a close shave or a mm. getaway or some moment where she pushes the guy away or survives in some way or like gets out until the final story, which is Trump. And it's so crafted that you know that that's on purpose. You know what I mean? I mean, it's also interesting that she doesn't tell them in chronological order. Mm -mm. And they're more structured thematically than time-wise. So if I recall correctly, the one that comes right before the Trump story is the one from summer camp. Yes, it's really extraordinary. I think the one from summer camp, she, she goes through at the end the two people who she wishes she had said something about. Because she talks about these other guys and she's like, you know, whatever, this shitty boss. And, and yeah. there's a real like this kind of generational thing of you just fucking suck it up. Yeah. And she was a cheerleader and she talks about being a cheerleader at Indiana University and just kind of sucking it up and the way that you just go about it in this kind of empowered feminism that has these experiences and doesn't think of it systemically, thinks of it in that way where you're like, whatever, I can handle it. Mm -hmm. And then she lands on the two stories where she wishes she had said something. And one of them was a yeah. camp counselor who abused her when she was 12. And one of them is Donald Trump because she feels about like, what impact would this have made for other women if I had said something? Right. Before. They're both places where you can see she felt naive about the way she behaved in the situation, but um, that she's sort of recognizing a, a damage there, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that's so interesting and why I think it crosses the line. I think so much of the Me Too writing that we've seen has been anchored in testimonial. Mm -hmm. Testimonial and journalism. And I feel like what we're seeing right now is writers starting to try to pull it into something else. And right. in, in the sort of like, I've never dealt with these things. I've never looked at these things. I wasn't going to look at these things because I didn't need to because I'm a tough lady. God damn it. Yeah. I, uh, I do want to talk about how this was received. And I think the way she frames it has something to do with how it was received mm -hmm. because she didn't approach it in that journalistic way, or even in a more traditional memoir -y way, her tone is kind of breezy and matter of fact. Yes. It's kind of this like delightful adventure and she's an adventurous. And yeah. I think that that's how a lot of us want to feel like we are. Like she's in Bergdorf's and she runs into this guy and it turns out to be Donald Trump and he's buying a gift for a lady and she's like, I'll help you. And it's completely right. hilarious and fun and breezy and this almost like delightful event that you're going to tell a story about at lunch with your girlfriends in an hour. Mm -hmm. And then it's a nightmare. Yeah. And she doesn't indulge in talking about how these events affected her emotionally or what impact they, she lets you see through the vignettes and the stories of her life, how they may have impacted her. Right. But she doesn't focus on that explicitly. Instead of that, there's a lot of um, uh, 
a little bit of self-mockery, a little bit of disparagement of herself and how foolish she has been either for uh, getting herself in these situations, for not wanting, knowing what to do in them, and also for not saying anything in the end. Yes. She calls yes. herself a coward. But what you were about to get to, which we didn't, is that because it's not set up in this way that we can easily receive, mm-hmm. it was kind of a blip. It was barely mentioned. Yeah. A, a respected writer accused the president of the United States of rape. Yeah. And she had the credibility of having two witnesses who she told about it at the time. Yeah. Pretty good confirmation. Yeah. And it barely made a blip. It it's gone now. So what's going on there? I don't know. There's so much noise right now. There's so much horror right now. Yeah. It's like it doesn't even rate anymore. But it's also true that she's promoting a book. Yes. And there's, like, my first question when I heard that this accusation was in a book that she was promoting was, like, how did she not say something about it earlier? It takes a long time to write a book, and it takes a long time to get it published. Yeah. So she's been working on this and planning it, um, but never felt it was necessary for her to just come forward and tell people the story. Like when he was running, after he won, you know, when other women were coming forward. And I think her reasons that she gives why she didn't sort of make sense. And she accepts that by calling herself a coward. You know, she accepts that she was looking out for her own privacy and so forth, rather than thinking about the greater good. And I don't disbelieve that at all. But you can see how difficult that can be for people to wrap their heads around. Yes. Do you, you know, as soon as you're promoting a book, you have something to gain. Right. Uh, and that's unfortunate. I feel like that does undermine her credibility in a lot of people's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. One of the things that we had talked about her in context of is this famous romance novelist named Judith Krantz, who I love, who wrote what is known as shopping and fucking novels, um, and how she is of Judith Krantz's generation, of this kind of devil-may-care gal (laughs) who is brilliantly talented and at the top of her field and at the seat of power and in the seat of power and fucking whoever she wants and wearing a fabulous dress while she does it. Yeah, yeah. she's very much the real life embodiment of this kind of fantasy, or at least on the surface, her life appears to be the, the embodiment of that. And it was this 80s and 90s capitalist vision Of what a woman could be. Of a liberated woman. Of a a liberated liberated, woman post-feminism. This is like, we won and this is what winning looks like. And what it looks like is having plenty of money to buy all the fabulous clothes you want and live the luxurious lifestyle you want, but you've earned it yourself. You have sexual agency You are the boss in the boardroom and the bedroom. Like, that is the story that she clearly believed herself to be. So now New York, in the wake of Me Too, passed a law that allows survivors survivors of sexual assault to not be trapped by the tiny statute of limitations that's there to 
get some kind of legal recourse for sexual assault. And she has sued Trump. And we are in the middle of the trial as we speak. Like Trump is on trial for sexual assault. Yes. Um, and he's not just on trial for sexual assault. He's on trial for defamation. Because in the wake of her accusations, he said she's lying. He sicked his followers after her. And so she's suing him both for the assault and for defamation right now. And her testimony has been amazing, amazingly consistent, honest. She sobbed on the stand. She sobbed, and this is the best thing I've ever done is tell my truth. She talked about her inability to ever date again. She was very precise with how she talked about um, laughing uh, about her reactions because the Trump's defense lawyer and Trump isn't showing up at all in this trial. Um, he's not even showing up in the courtroom, but his defense lawyer is playing the greatest hits of the rape defense lawyer. What were you wearing? What did you say? Why did you do this? Why are you telling? Like he's doing all the victim blaming stuff. I mean, 101 just, and she's being so strong, consistent. She's clearly been very well prepared. She's a very intelligent woman. Like all of this is happening right now. And it's really interesting to watch. It's really interesting to watch. I've been, I've been reading the updates every day. I thought, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I have not been reading every update, but you said earlier when we were um, preparing to record, you said that the defense attorney on cross asked her about laughing, like during the assault, I guess the idea being that she was having a good time. Well, that she laughed, she laughed before the assault, that she was laughing at him. And she says, yes, because often the way that a woman diffuses a situation and lets a man know that she's not sexually interested in him is by laughing, because mm -hmm. that's your way of saying, I'm not interested in you and kind of letting a guy down easy. So she is in a very Helen Gurley Brown, sex in the single girl. She was following all the rules. So the sort of way that, I mean, which is very sex in the city where, I mean, which I remember from being a young woman in New York, which is like, most of your the time, you're just coming up with good stories to tell your friends. It's like way more interesting than the men who you're like encountering in your life or the stories that you're getting out of the encounters. Um, but yeah, she knows all the rules of that encounter. And then he ruptures those rules with this very brutal assault. Mm -hmm. um, and she's been very good at staying consistent and illuminating why she would make those choices at any point, which I think has been very interesting to have be public because so much of the 101 of greatest hits of rape defense lawyers like, you know, why didn't you scream? And she's like, I didn't scream because I was busy fighting. It doesn't matter if I didn't scream. He raped me. He raped me whether or not I screamed. <laughs> like she's being very um, precise about it. Yeah. And um one of the things that I think is interesting as a side note is that on the defamation charge, Trump was going to claim that she couldn't sue him for that because he was in office as president at the time. Uh, now, I don't know if there, that would hold any water, but regardless, it doesn't matter because after he left office, he posted on his fucking social media site, Truth Social, the same defamatory remarks. Like, he's done it since he was president, 
this like, she's not my type. She's ugly. I've never been with that woman. I don't even know her, blah, blah, blah. She's a liar. Um, so I think what's been very interesting about her very public ongoing reckoning of this in the lead up to the trial is this tension of how this Judith Krantz heroine, this joyous participant in society and wealth and sex, who gives advice to millions of women every month about how to deal with their sexual problems, um, the tension between her being able to tell the story and speak in her truth and the real difficulties that a woman of that generation, particularly of that generation that is trying to be so liberated, mm -hmm. has with acknowledging being a victim of this kind of violence. Yeah. And this was really on display the other day when she had an interview on CNN with Anderson Cooper. And um, Trump even mentioned the Anderson Cooper interview in his deposition because he thought it was exonerating to him the things she said. And I want to talk about that because I think going back to, yeah, the Judith Krantz, Helen Gurley Brown, like it's the early 90s. I am this empowered, independent woman. It, it just seems like I can see that side of her in conversation battling with the side of her that's like, I need to tell the world that this man brutalized me. And they are at odds with each other. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with what she said to Anderson Cooper on her show. But it's really, really interesting. So I just want to read a couple of like snippets from the transcript here that really struck me. Um, one is that she doesn't want to call the incident rape. She does not want to use that word at all. She talks about what happened in the dressing room. She says it was like a fight. Uh, and it didn't last long. And that's why I don't use the word you used. I use the word fight. Anderson Cooper says, you don't use the word rape. And E. Jean Carroll said, sexual violence is in every country, in every society. Women all over the world, I'm paraphrasing here now, undergo horrible sexual violence. She says, mine was short. I got out. I'm happy now. I'm moving on. And I think of the woman who the women who are enduring constant sexual violence. So this one incident, this one, what, three minutes in this little dressing room? I just say it's a fight. That way I'm not the victim, right? I'm not the victim. I find it fascinating the way that she is obviously struggling between very much wanting to speak her truth, knowing that this man has to be held accountable. And she talks to she spoke later in the interview with Anderson Cooper about how she was writing this advice column for years and women were writing about various traumas, sexual traumas that happened to them. And she felt like a hypocrite giving them advice, but not coming forward herself about it. And that's part of what motivated her. And also part of what motivates her is very much the like. And I have to say, I really identify with that because I I I was molested as a child. But like, there's very much a part of me that's like, but you know what? It wasn't that bad. It happened mm. a couple of times. It could have been so much worse. I think that sensitivity to knowing and hearing about how much worse it can be makes it very hard sometimes to even give yourself the permission 
to right. feel pain, to suffer, to acknowledge that it was terrible because you're like, you know what? Actually, like other people survive so much worse. And I think that's the other thing that she's saying. Like oh, she gets way worse stories. Yeah, <laughs> like, that is what she's saying is that, that she doesn't feel, yeah, like her, uh, that this incident rises to the level of what happens to other people and therefore she's somehow claiming some kind of trauma, some kind of victimhood status that she doesn't deserve, you know, that that doesn't apply to her. But it's also her saying, that way I'm not the victim, right? Like, she also clearly has an aversion to thinking of herself as having been a victim, Um, which is why also we use the term rape survivor and sexual assault survivor. We don't like the term victim. It carries with it a lot of connotations and implications that we have reasons to want to not avoid. highlight. Yeah. Yeah. Avoid. Yeah. We want it. Because we want it. How can we be out in the world being strong, successful people if this is known? If people know right. this about us? Like, how how am I my powerful self with this experience? Right. And and victim emphasizes the bad thing that someone else did to you. But even Survivor, what's hard about Survivor is that you're like, but I'm so much more than a survivor of this event. Mm. Like, I'm all these other things. And most of what I am is these other things. So it, it, like, either way... The, Either the, way, the, the problem is isn't this... the word. The problem no. is not the terminology. No, the, the problem, problem is the terminology, even though survivors obviously better terminology than the victim. The the problem is this feeling of being reduced yes. in, in a patriarchy that like, especially when your whole vibe, which is the Judith Krantz vibe, right. is about being a woman who has come to the table and is winning at the same game. To then be so mm-hmm. reduced by that game in the way that you're not supposed to be. You didn't stay home to be a housewife. You didn't, right, like, right, right, you right. didn't do any of that stuff. Like, it's really hard. It's really hard. And and it leads to a lot of what you see in this interview with Anderson Cooper, which is her blaming herself, which is obviously very common, extremely common among survivors. Why was I in that position? Why did I put myself in that position? It's a very common type of thinking. And she says it multiple times in the interview. She says, that was just a dumb thing to go into a dressing room with a man that I hardly know and have him shut the door and then be unable to stop him. Uh, I always think back and think that was the stupidest thing I've ever done. And I should never have done it. That that self-blame, it's common. So I don't want to attribute it to a generational thing per se. It's very common. But I think it plays into the overall picture of her ambivalence, her struggling with how to frame this. It's almost as if, if you blame yourself, then you are not a victim. If you blame yourself, it means that you could have been in control. And I feel like that brings us to this last part of tension that I think that that we've articulated that's really interesting, which is that one of the things she says in the Anderson Cooper interview, which she gets asked about on the stand and answers very brilliantly, um, there are a couple of things. One is that she talks about rape and how like, I think most people find rape scenes sexy. And what she's saying is not that she thinks rape is sexy, but what she's saying is that 
the way that rape plays, the reason that we have a bunch of rape scenes in Game of Thrones is because people think it's sexy. And she also talks about how women coming forward, uh, saying that Trump assaulted them, paid them off, whatever. She's like, I think that played well for him, that it didn't hurt him among his voters. Both of those things demonstrate a woman who knows how the game is played. Mm-hmm. And it must be very humiliating for somebody whose whole self-worth is built on winning based on how the game is played to have lost at the game. Because mm-hmm. there is this ideal world where where Trump being a sexual assaulter does not play well with his base. But that's <laughs> not the world. And she's that's really hip to and she's really hip to that in a way that I think maybe younger uh activists don't want to acknowledge. Or don't want to accept. That's or right. don't want to accept. That's because the, the exact quote is she says regarding the women coming forward to talk about being sexually assaulted by Trump in 2016. Eugene Carroll says it showed him very manly. He takes what he wants. He's rich enough to have any woman, you know, beautiful playboy playmates, porn stars. And he's so rich he can pay them off. He can have any woman he wants. I think it plays well. And she's not wrong. Yeah. She, I, she makes a great point, and, and I hate to acknowledge the truth of it because it's probably true. It probably did fucking help him in the election. It made him look more macho to a lot of people. Yeah. And that's true. Um, I think the difference between the sort of Judith Krantz generation and maybe, if not our generation, then maybe the millennials and the Zoomers, like the younger yes. people coming up, is the acceptance of that as just a reality you have to live with. Because the the whole self-blame thing and the I never should have been in the dressing room and the I don't even want to call it rape, uh, it, it all seems to go, come back to this idea of like, we're savvy women and we know. We know that this is still a shitty We're not under some real delusion that there's actually no patriarchy and there's actually gender equality and nothing bad could happen to us. But the way we're empowered is that we can avoid that. The way we're empowered is that we know about it and we can choose not to care about it if we don't want to care about it. The men can make comments to us in the workplace tell us there's a pubic hair on a can of coke or whatever the fuck they're gonna say that's a clarence thomas reference by the way if you're too young to know and we're just gonna we'll laugh it off or yeah. we'll just roll our eyes at them and it will be fine because it doesn't affect us and we don't have to be affected by it that's why when we get harassed or assaulted we don't come forward with it because that just makes a man look better yeah like it's all part of that picture yeah. And I think maybe, I hope for younger women, it's not that they're naive about that, but that there's a belief that we could actually change that, that you don't have to accept those things. You don't have to have the tough, thick skin of the Judith Krantz heroine. Absolutely. And that was something that uh, Virginia Heffernan has been writing about a lot is this idea that like also those 90s girls, that it's part of like the funny story. It is part of the funny story, these horrible men. And the ways that it actually has a real impact on our earning power, on our professional success, on our future that was supposed to be ours and limitless is, is the hardest thing to accept. And by acknowledging it, we're letting that interfere. Then that's on us. And right. that kind of feeling, super, super hard, 
super hard. And yet at the same time that she can't call it what it is and she fought and, you know, she did her, she still has not ever had a sexual or romantic partner in the 25 years since then. She's obviously been profoundly affected by the incident. And she knows it, but it seems to me, my impression is that she doesn't want that to be true. Yes, but she is also testifying like a fucking boss. And she is also bringing it to the legal system and doing her best. So we will keep you updated. Uh, But it is a really revelatory thing to witness uh, as this kind of next chapter of the story that we've been following. And I think your question, which was our question then and is our question now, our question then was, how is the story under the radar? And our question now is like, how is this story still kind of under the radar? Like, how is this not I a mean, bigger fucking deal? The trial is happening right now. I Part of it is Trump not showing up. Like, if he were physically showing up to it, it would be a different thing, I think. Which is why he is not. Right. But, um, yeah, a former president of the United States is on trial for rape right now. And mm-hmm. it's like a story that's out there but sure is it i feel like it doesn't get a fraction of the coverage that it should or would under any other circumstances and i know you can't compare anything that happens with trump to any other circumstances you can't be like well normally if a president had classified documents in his private residence okay oh we know we know none of those rules apply anymore that said, it still seems like, wow, we all have just accepted that this person is a rapist and we're just like, hmm, I wonder if there will be any consequence for it. We'll see. Probably not. Maybe. Okay, as we get into this next topic, I, I have a story I want to tell that I think will be an interesting transition from our previous one because this struck me while you were talking about how um, when you're young, especially uh, being about town, your stories with men, your your encounters with men are mostly just so you have stories to tell your friends, right? It's it's <laughs> all about, it's very sex in the Absolutely. city, like that like you have something to talk about at brunch on the following Sunday. It's not even really for the fun of the encounters with the men, which are rarely actually that fun. I was thinking about this, interestingly enough, earlier today, because I was thinking about being in my 20s and when I used to like go out to bars. And I was like, was that fun? I don't actually remember (laughs) having fun. I remember getting all dressed up. I remember going out with my friends All of the incidents that I remember were incidents with horrible men, not and not like necessarily assault or anything like that. But the things that I remember were not fun things, good times, great times. They were just stories. So one of those stories was my my roommate at the time, whose name was also Rebecca. Um, she's not my imaginary friend or a figment of my imagination. <laughs> There's actually another woman named Rebecca. That was my roommate. And um, we were out at the bar at the Hudson Hotel. And we met a guy who claimed to be and was 
Rupert Murdoch's cousin. Uh huh. Yeah. Or it might have been nephew. He was younger than Rupert Murdoch, but he definitely, he definitely was related to Rupert Murdoch. And it was getting to the end of the evening, and he was like, "I want to go downtown, go to this other club." And we live downtown, so we were like, "Yeah, let's go to the club," because we were like, "We'll we'll get him to pay for a cab, and then we'll just leave him and go home." So we got in the cab with Rupert Murdoch's cousin or nephew or whatever and um yeah he just to give you the picture he had like a, a tan line on his ring finger where he oh. had taken off his wedding ring classic you know? just classic like, classic oh. yeah. yeah Rebecca Strauss pointed that one out to me um we're sharing the cab with him and he's telling us about his exotic he has a a place in some, you know, tropical exotic locale but you know he's visiting New York and we're like how do you like it in New York uh, and he's like, oh, well, I'm staying on the Upper West Side. I don't really like it. Too many dogs and Jews. Wow. <laughs> he said that. See, this is what I'm talking wow. about. It was the story. It's all about the story. Like, was it a fun time? Because being, being no. stuck in a cab with a guy like that, not fun. Yeah. Telling the story next Sunday, very yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. The way Rebecca Strauss grabbed my knee when he said too many dogs and Jews and like squeezed it so hard that it's like still bruised to this day. Yeah, not that fun. No, not so much fun. But good story. <laughs> and then the punchline was when we got down to the club downtown, uh, you know, there's like a velvet rope outside and he could not get in. He was like talking to the bouncer and we just sort of stood back like we we could get into clubs when you're when you're 25 and cute you can get into clubs but we just sort of stood back and watched him try to argue with the bouncer and not be able to get in and then we were like all right let's go home uh so that brings us to what is the actual topic of this segment <laughs> the only connection being Rupert Murdoch really right right which is Tucker Carlson getting fired and i feel like one of the things that I feel like connects those two stories is like, how is, you know, Trump being on trial for rape under the radar? How was Tucker Carlson somehow allowed to be the monster that he was on the air for tw 20 years and still have it somehow be under the radar? Um, mm -hmm. And then why is he being fired now? Is it because of the Dominion voting machine settlement where Fox News is going to have to pay over $750 million for all of their voting fraud bullshit that Tucker Carlson was a huge part of? Is it the Abby Grossman lawsuit, Grossman, uh, alleging a very hostile work environment that's sexist and racist and anti-Semitic? Um, and back in the day, we did an episode about Tucker Carlson with writer and activist Charlotte Clymer, uh, where we were talking about this weird under the radarness of very public things that Tucker Carlson was saying, very much like too many dogs and chews. Right, right, right. The reason we were talking about it then is because some audio had come up with Tucker who had been on 
this radio show with Bubba the Love Sponge, where he called rape shield laws unfair, and he'd love a scenario involving like young teenage girls sexually experimenting with each other, and women are extremely primitive. No, but to be clear, to be clear, we were talking about it because of the college scandal thing. Yes. Right? Well, we were talking about it because of, yes, because of privilege. We were like about right. his white privilege. Um, and, then, and then this Bubba the Love Sponge interview thing came up, I think as an example of just like how he's continuously saying shit that is beyond outrageous, that is beyond offensive, but he's just been out there saying it and it doesn't always Well, and that's one of the things we were reckoning with, which is like, so he said this totally horrible stuff where Warren Jeffs, the sexual assaulting uh, Mormon fundamentalist leader, he was like, well, you know, at least the rapist has made a lifelong commitment to live and take care of the person. So that's a little different. Like he's defending Warren Jeffs. And right. it's so horrible. But we were like, what is the horror about when this guy has been calling Iraqis monkeys like last week? Like, mm -hmm. how is this Bubba the Love Sponge stuff different than anything else this guy has been saying that is so disgusting and demeaning and horrifying. Like, yeah. what the fuck is going on? Yeah, and um, in that episode, uh, Charlotte speculated on the idea or predicted, basically, that people on Fox News were eventually just going to be openly using the N-word. Yes. Like, that there's only, like, this just continues to escalate and escalate. Um, and there's only one direction it can go. And we talked about, you know, there was this rumored of apprentice behind the scenes tapes that never got released. You know, what could be on them? And everyone assumes it's Trump using the N-word. And we talked about whether that would even make a difference. Um, would it shift anything? There's, it wouldn't change his base. Absolutely not. And they would find, and the right-wing media would find a reason to justify it. Right. That if he did use that, if he did go beyond the pale, A, it wouldn't bother his base. And so why are we going after those people to try to sway their vote? It's never going to happen. And B, it would only give them another way to like, well, these liberals are just being hypocrites. And so we just should say whatever. We, what, what, where's free speech now, huh? Which we've discussed many right. times on right, the show. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, and it led to this uh, question of what good does it do to try to shame Tucker Carlson? Like, what are yes. we doing when we shed light on yes. these horrible things that he's saying? Does it accomplish anything? Yes. I guess our thought at the time was that it's important to demonstrate a pattern. Yes. <laughs> and that somehow if we bring up these receipts and demonstrate this pattern, then people will watch more closely. Yes, that actually by being by being alerted to that, then we are kind of hip to it and we're waiting for it to happen again. Yeah. And we use Roseanne Barr as like one of the examples of that. So that there, so we were sort of going between like, what's the point? And then like, well, maybe there is a point. <laughs> right, right, right. So I think I'm landing way more on the what's the point these few years later, because uh, I'm looking at what Tucker Carlson has meant to the right and to the left. Yes. In yes. his time as the sort of flagship Nazi on the <laughs> network, right? 
He is their 8 p.m. slot. He's their guy, has been. And we we all know how horrible he is. And, and I guess, like, I'm thinking about the ways in which people share clips of Tucker, like on social media or on MSNBC. They will show clips not just of Tucker, but often of him and um, respond to the outrageous things that he said. Although, honestly, maybe they should have done it more. Maybe that would have brought some attention to it because you have the right with their echo chamber. They are sharing these ideas amongst themselves and and increasingly and increasingly normalizing more and more extreme ideas. Yeah, like normalizing fucking the Hungarian Orban's just right. very directly fascist shit. Like normalizing it. Normalizing Russian propaganda. Let's be real. Oh, how much yes. of what oh, he... Oh, yes. What Russia Tucker... today was very upset about Tucker's fire. Oh, yeah. No, they like offered him a job immediately. Like, you know... <gasps> Offered him a job as if he's not already on their payroll. But right, that's my right. conspiracy exactly, theory. Exactly. But I question, like, when we on social media make fun of Tucker Carlson, you know, oh, he's having sexual fantasies about M&Ms. This guy wants to fuck candy. Ha, oh, ha, ha. yeah. He's just like, how are you gendering? How are you regendering? This is, he has to see the green M&M as having an M&M vagina. Right. Well, it's the culture war shit. Everything. Yes. This like exaggerated, the woke liberals, the woke That's people. Right. Wokeism is coming for your woke children. Mob. Woke mob. Coming, it's coming for your sexy M&Ms. So when we make fun of that or get outraged by it, I wonder if it's better or worse. Like, maybe we're giving it air. Maybe it's better if it stays in its sealed chamber of right-wing hysteria and they can work each other up and whatever, because that's going to happen anyway. Um, but we don't need to spread it. We don't need to disseminate it to any larger audience. Or maybe it is better to shed light on it. I don't believe... At all in the, like, sunlight's a disinfectant thing. I, that doesn't work. That clearly does not work when fascism is in play. But I don't know. I also see people um, benefiting from it. There's obviously a pleasure in it. There's a pleasure and we're all going to get together and laugh at or get outraged by or get angry at Tucker Carlson. Because it makes us feel better to have a community of people who are sane and can see what he's doing wrong but but it's it's like an ecosystem that feeds on itself and then nourishes itself it's all part of the same ecosystem where it's like the right-wing media uh produces something outrageous and then the left gets outraged and vice versa right at the same time what i find very interesting about tucker carlson and all the reasons why they think maybe he's being fired now and Apparently, in the discovery process for the Dominion case, they revealed a tranche of like texts that were really bad, but no, like really, really bad. Where you're like, mm. how could it be worse than calling people monkey? Anyway, yeah, how could it be worse than any of the stuff? Like, there's nothing they didn't know, right? Even if Absolutely. it wasn't, even if it is worse than the stuff he's been saying on the air, there's no way the people at Fox don't know, don't 100. know. Hundreds. Haven't known who he is. So, and and what I find interesting about the articles that I've been finding about him, uh, some of which are recent in light of his firing, is that 
Tucker Carlson seems to invite very exhaustive surveys of his whole body of work to demonstrate the way that he's been racist or sexist or pro-Russia or whatever all along. A full year ago, the New York Times did this really pretty amazing interactive feature where they went through all 1,150 Tucker Carlson shows up to that point and did this specific study of how he used language, how he used us and them, how he stoked rage, mm. fear, uh, and terror in his listeners. Uh, Media Matters, who we cited in the uh, episode we did with Charlotte, just published a 59-page document tracking his engagement with white supremacy from the beginning of his career to his final show. USA Today just published today, as you noted, uh, an article describing his promotion of Russia. Yeah, all his pro-Russia comments over the years. Everything he's been doing, he's been doing out in the open explicitly the whole fucking time. So right. even when we have these little clips that have moments of outrage, it's very exhausting because what are you going to do? He's doing it every single fucking night. And Fox didn't fire him because that's what he's doing. They fired him for some other reason that we will find out later, where maybe, maybe it's just like we'll one lawsuit out. too far. Maybe they just want to go back to the well and kind of refresh the situation. But he's an interesting figure in that he is not unique. What I thought was really interesting is that the night of his firing was Monday night. So it was Rachel Maddow, MSNBC. And she wouldn't even talk about Tucker Carlson. She only talked about him in the context of all the right-wing media figures who who were his predecessors, starting with Father Coughlin, the famously fascist Catholic priest who had a massive radio show, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, all of these people who were the pre-Tugger Carlson who seemed invincible until they all of a sudden weren't and were no longer on the news. So there's this place that he holds and it's hard to know how to understand the moment of his firing and then understand the mo the years of his existence on the fucking public news. Yeah, it's there's a there's a lot to unpack and and it's hard to because we don't actually know what is the rationale like why right. really why did this happen right. really like I'm really curious. But there is this question. I think that point about him being this latest in this long line of super right-wing media personalities yes. who have their moments. I mean, I think this was Rachel Maddow's point, right? They have their moment of ascendancy and then they're gone. Yes. People move on to something else. They don't last as individuals. And it makes me wonder in terms of Tucker Carlson, like you have all of these right-wingers now being like, oh, Fox News has gone woke, whatever the fuck they're saying, right? They're canceling their Fox Nation subscriptions and they're being like, yeah, we're going to boycott Fox News. You know, God willing, I hope they do. Please. Please. Please you know, just finish it. Finish it all off. Science permit it. I want them to boycott Fox News. I want Fox News to go out of fucking business. That'd be great. But um, 
there is a question out there of where is the real influence in this situation? Is it Tucker Carlson or is it the Fox News 8 p.m. time slot? Right. If Tucker Carlson goes to Newsmax or YouTube or whatever he decides to do, does he wield as much influence there? Does he build his audience there? No, obviously there'll have to be a smaller audience, but how many actually stop watching Fox or does he just get replaced with the next person? Because realistically, you know, before him, there was Bill O'Reilly and uh, people who are younger may not remember, but Bill O'Reilly was the king of Fox News. He was the brand. He was the network in his day. And then he had these sexual harassment lawsuits and Fox was like, goodbye, you're gone. You know what? You're just a little too much trouble. You cross that little line that only line. we understand. Yeah. Yeah. You became a liability in some way that was just too much. It was not in the right way. Uh, and before him, there was Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck was uh, this wild conspiracy theorist who had an important role in establishing the whole George Soros anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Well, like, that establishing was it, because that's been cyclical. I mean, that's that's Yeah, well, the anti-Semitic thing is the, cyclical, yeah, but, like, yeah. but the George Soros specifically. the Soros thing, yeah. absolutely. He, he, was, he was instrumental in that, and um, he was off the wall, and he was incredibly popular, and I don't even know why, uh, but he was dropped... And I feel like that was one of the things we were talking about before the show is like what makes um, what makes Tucker Carlson like different or notable. He's just one of many. And what makes him interesting is that he was the one who was on during 45's presidency. Just in terms of the um, harmfulness of the things he's saying, I don't know that Tucker was actually materially worse than his predecessors, even going back to the 1930s. But yes, as you said, what makes the difference is the political moment that he has existed in, where uh, those inflammatory statements and sentiments being expressed to a wide audience, um, they do feel like they matter in a different way now. Yes, because also he was the guy, he was the 8 p.m. time slot guy during the March for Black Lives, Yes, during COVID, during Me Too, during January 6th, mm -hmm. during Trump running the first time, during Trump running the second time. Exactly. So, the, 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 the election lie, all of that. Yes, the whole thing, that was him. Yeah. Speaking of the 8 p.m. time slot, though, I do think it's this is kind of interesting. So after Tucker left on Monday, his ratings... Which he was not prepared, prepared, prepared for. for. He, he had no really, idea it was coming. Absolutely not. Which is great. I just love that. And I just... Yes. Just tickles it's me very pleasurable. a little. Yeah, it's very pleasurable. To, to imagine him being blindsided by that, you know, at least... Well, because he, he goes home on Friday night being like, I'm the king of the world with all yep. his smug shit. And then Monday, it's like, bye-bye. Right. It's nice. It's exactly. nice. It's nice. It's a nice little thing to think about. But... um. So normally he had a viewership of about 3 million, which is like juggernaut status for cable news. Like an MSNBC or CNN show 
in the same time slot might get 500,000 viewers. He got 3 million. And so Monday night when there was a fill-in for him, it was like 1.5 or 1.6 million. And then the following night, it was like 1.45 billion. Like it went down. There was absolutely there an obvious effect where Tucker's absence drastically affected the ratings. That said, 3 million people is like no people. In the, You know, I recognize in this landscape of a million cable news or million cable channels and streaming and everything like audiences are so broken up you're never going to get the giant audiences that you got like the finale of mash when like half of america watched it all at the same time it's never going to happen again but i was struck by that first of all that the three million viewers makes him such a juggernaut and it's like three million it's like it's like a lot of people like if you wanted to fit them in a room But politically speaking, you know, 70 million people voted for Trump. Yeah. And and more than that for Biden. So 3 million is like, okay, this is like a little, it's a little piece. But also in the article I was reading about the, uh, there's a Washington Post article about this ratings drop off after Tucker's departure. And they mention that Newsmax got a boost after Tucker's departure. So Newsmax the night that Tucker was fired had like 600,000 viewers or something like that, which is unheard of for Newsmax, right? It's comparable, like a comparable to what CNN might have. Wow. So everybody was like, I'm not getting my Tucker fix. Where do I go? Where do I go for my hit? They went to Newsmax. So this feeds into this idea that, uh, concerns me, which is of Tucker and maybe others of his ilk, moving from this more mainstream version of the conservative media apparatus to to a more fringe platform where there are even fewer constraints on him and he's even more encouraged to just be out there with his bullshit and like maybe this is bad and not helpful. On the other hand, are people like my parents are people like people's parents who just like have Fox News on all the time. They're not going to follow him to Newsmax or OAN or wherever or Russia today. They're going to just keep watching Fox News and whoever's going to be on is going to be on. And an interesting uh, statistic to note is that Newsmax saw a similar bump after the election. A lot of the MAGA people got upset with Fox News because they called what was it, Arizona? Arizona. They called, they called Arizona, Arizona yeah. early for Biden. And so all, a lot of people were like, no more Fox News, blah, 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 just like they've been this past week. And they gave this huge bump to Newsmax's ratings. You know, a huge bump being like a couple hundred thousand people, but okay. And it faded. It did not last. So there's a good precedent and reason to think that whatever bump they might get, even if they were to put Tucker on, which they haven't done so, might not last. And that things will sort of normalize back to where people just automatically turn on their Fox News and whoever the successor to Tucker is will be on. And that person probably won't be any better. Well, I think that what happens with all these people is they start with some kind of personality, like personality performance. Mm -hmm. 
And then they get more extreme in their politics as it goes on. Like, I think that there's actually a really specific, like, trajectory, uh, trajectory of their thing. Mm-hmm. Like, this is my thing. I'm the bow-tied young guy who thinks all these liberals are bullshit, but I still want to smoke my weed. Like, that was Tucker Carlson. He very much was like, right. I'm just a libertarian, dude. Right. So I'm like, fuck all of your different orthodoxies. I'm just... I'm just hip. I'm going to give it to you straight, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that f- all of Fox's cults of personality starts with the personality. And as time goes on, their politics become more and more sort of extreme in the, de- in the desire to like hit that button like the rat in the cage with the cocaine button. Like I'm just going to hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it. And so they go more and more extreme until for some reason they cross a line and then they, you know, rinse, repeat, we're going to get a new one. Mm-hmm. But Tucker, even though there was absolutely evidence of where it was going to go, he didn't start with like, I love this fascist dictator. Right. He started with like, well, why can't I ask the question about whether people with differently shaped craniums are dumber? Like it, yeah, yeah, yeah. it started more vague. And more free speechy. And I'm just going to tell you what the liberals don't want you to hear. And then it goes more and more extreme to kind of keep yeah. the machine going. So whoever they have next is going to be some some new flavor of just personality. It's going to start there and then it'll start getting worse. But what Rachel Maddow noted is that with every round, the actual overall audience for it is contracting and getting smaller. Mm, because they're dying. Like Tuck, because they are old people because of who dying, are dying. And because, because it's all within the echo chamber of the right-wing media sphere, which is different than the right-wing political sphere, which is decreasingly relevant yes. in terms of yes. a political vision that, that people in this country actually believe in. So... It's all like performing for each other. It's all like girls telling stories for each other. Mm, Uh, Yeah. And that group of girls is getting smaller. So I think that that's what we're going to see in terms of the next Tucker. What I'm curious about when you tell me the story where it's like for that first night, they get a news bump, like a Newsmax bump, Mm -hmm. is, is Fox saying, let's shed the real outliers to try to shovel in some maybe on the center people like are they trying to shift their viewership because their audience is all going to be dead well that's a very interesting question because they've never shown much interest in that and like the whole dominion lawsuit all of the text messages and internal communications from fox that were revealed in discovery indicate very clearly that they see a threat from newsmax and oan that they, mm. they see these competitors, as small as they are at this time, as, you know, they're primarying them from the right, as it were. They're coming mm. in without mm. any of the compunctions, telling the audience all the shit they want to hear. And the Fox producers and anchors are realizing, like, if we don't support Trump's big lie about the election being rigged and all this shit, the audience will just leave and go to OAN, who will tell them this stuff like what they want to hear yeah like the whole reason they felt that they had to lie about dominion is because like that's how they need to hold on to their audience if there is conversation going on there about how do we bring in a new audience uh that certainly wasn't relevant to what 
uh, was uh, being revealed in discovery in this lawsuit. So who knows? Could be happening. Doesn't seem super likely. I do want to bring up this article from The Intercept by Peter Moss, who uh, calls the ejection of Tucker Carlson a classic reverse ferret move by Rupert Murdoch. And briefly, what he means by that is Rupert Murdoch has a long history. It goes back to when he owned The Sun in Britain, the tabloid The Sun. And when they would print stories about a given celebrity, they would call it putting a ferret down their pants. Right? We're going to put a ferret down Elton John's pants. We're going to really stick it to him. We're going to get him riled up by the things we're going to say. And every once in a while, they would cross a line where they would get sued or uh, the audience would have black backlash or there'd be some consequence to it. And they would have to do a reverse ferret. They'd have to back off of that, pivot, go in a different direction. So the premise in this Intercept piece is that this is a pattern that Rupert Murdoch's media entities repeatedly do this. They escalate and escalate. They push the boundary of truth, of social and ethical acceptability until they hit some kind of resistance, until some kind of line is crossed, and then it's reverse ferret time, and they pivot. And pivot doesn't mean uh, retract, apologize, you know, change their ways. It just means drop it and go follow a different thread. That's right. And that does appear to be what's going on here in some way. I guess for me, though, the question is, and what I think I'm interested to see moving forward, is that they can do the reverse ferret, but at the end of the day, they still have one more lawsuit coming. Mm -hmm. And you can lie about everyone in the world until you lie to the company or entity or person who has enough money that they're going to fucking sue your ass and they can really fucking sue you. And I, I'm very curious to see if there is, I mean, it's the same with Alex Jones and his almost billion dollar liability now. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a moment where the lies finally have consequences? Is there a moment when the rapes finally have consequences? Are we at this moment where we're seeing certain bills coming due? And I feel like Tucker Carlson, getting rid of Tucker Carlson, eh, whatever. They're reverse ferreting so they can have the next guy who will, you know, spend 10 years getting worse and worse. Right. But then is there any point where they're like, oh, but we can't lie? You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I mean... This 780 whatever billion settlement um, with Dominion seems like, okay, the bill has come due, but it's a it's a tax uh, deduction for the company. And honestly, to how much does it affect their bottom line? They're probably going to pass the cost off to cable subscribers because uh, Fox makes most of its money from carriage fees from cable companies, not from advertisers. They make money from advertisers for sure, but most of their money they make from carriage fees, which is the fee that the cable companies pay to the networks for the right to carry their network. And Fox News has, at its height, at its most popular moments, 3 million viewers. 
There's way more than three million cable subscribers. Which is in this why they're which is why their advertisers are pillow companies. Right, yeah. Right, it's right, not like right. they they they're doing fine because of these carriage fees and we are paying for it. Anybody who has ca- a cable subscription, who has cable TV, is paying more because the cable company has to pay extra to Fox. So the vast majority of people who have cable are not watching Fox News, but they are paying for Fox News. So the long and short of it is that that money, that deficit for Fox will get passed on to all of the people who have cable. And Fox will be fine. So I don't know. I'm not at the point right now where I'm seeing bills really coming due, except to the extent that other people are paying them. Well, Listeners, there is no justice. Uh, <laughs> there, there is no justice. But we we don't have to hear about Tucker Carlson anymore. We're going to see uh, what happens with the E. Jean Carroll trial. And we're going to continue connecting the dots over time and following these stories and see where they lead. Uh, we're going to include the links to the crazy, exhaustive Tucker Carlson surveys that have been done over the years. Yes. And uh, we want to hear what you have to say. Do you think that there will be justice? Do you think that there's going to be a turn? Do you think Fox is having a succession-like moment where they don't know what they're going to do? Listeners, let us know. Yes, and what do you think is going to happen on succession? We want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> Okay, you can reach out to us in various ways. You can email us. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on the various social medias as at saucepodcast. And as always, the best way to reach us is on our Discord, which is available to anyone who is a member of our Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash saucepodcast and you can see the various membership levels and if and when you join, which we hope you will, you can uh, jump on the Sauce Speak Easy and you can talk about all this stuff or anything else you want to talk to us about or talk to other listeners about and we will get into it. And listeners, if there are things you want to just tell me privately about your feelings about Tucker Carlson, you can find me at Maya Garant anywhere you are looking for my grants. I do not want to know your private feelings about Tucker Carlson. You can keep those between you uh, and Maya. But if you have other stuff you want to talk to me about, you can find me as at Gynostar on all the various platforms. And we will be back soon uh, with God, more stories of this American life. No. Uh, with... <laughs> We'll be back soon with more culture and politics analysis. And uh, if there's anything else you'd like us to figure out, remember, ask us. We always want to hear your requests. What do you want us to ruin? Until then, adios, amoebas. Mm-hmm.